Are you frustrated with your government contracting journey? Do you feel like there's something missing in your business, but you just can't put your finger on it? Are you finding enough opportunities? Are you struggling to win the few opportunities you do find? Do you have a plan of attack or a strategy? Would you like someone to review your current approach? Maybe it's time to consider getting a coach. Our team of coaches have helped our clients win over $13.6 billion in government contracts. We've figured out how to help companies accelerate in the market. If you want to find out if coaching is for you, go to federal-access.com forward slash govcon coaching today and fill out a coaching application. I will personally respond to your application and schedule a time for us to talk about your business. There's no cost for this session and there's no obligation to join a coaching program. What I can guarantee you out of this session is that I will review your top challenges and give you detailed advice. If coaching makes sense for you, I'll walk through your options. Visit federal-access.com forward slash govcon coaching today to get started. Now let's get into this episode of Game Changers. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey everybody, Michael June here with Game Changers for Government Contractors. We have an old guest, Steve. You haven't been on in a while. So we got Stephen Coprince on with us today. Stephen, I know a lot of people know who you are, but for those who don't, why don't you tell them who you are and what you do? Well, Mike, uh, thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, it's been been too long, but a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, my name is Steve Coprince. I uh, am the founder and currently a senior partner at Coprince Law LLC. Uh, we are a boutique uh, law firm. We focus exclusively on federal government contracts. Boutique, of course, is the word we lawyers use to mean a focused uh, type legal practice. We represent uh, federal contractors, uh, mostly small businesses, but medium and large businesses as well. Uh, and that's all we do. And so it's a narrow practice in that that's uh, the only thing we focus on, uh, but it's deep because if it's related to government contracts, unless it's something like proposal writing or accounting, which we would refer you to experts in those fields, uh, we probably do it. And uh, happy to be here with you, as I yeah. said. Today, we're going to be doing a little bit of discussion around the FAR. And out of all of the podcasts, 150 something episodes of podcasts before this one, and I've never done a podcast where we talk a little bit in depth about the FAR. And I thought today it'd be good, even just a cover some of the basics about the FAR because a lot of people know it's there. A lot of people believe there are certain rules they should follow, but they're not exactly sure. And so maybe you can help us by just giving us a one over the world here on the FAR and maybe the top few things we need to be thinking about as government contractors when it comes to the FAR. Yeah, that's a, it's such a fantastic topic because I think that, uh, and I can't speak for everyone in government, but I think for many in government, who are working in a contracting field, they're getting some formal training on the FAR before they start their position or as they go along, continuing training on the FAR, be that through Defense Acquisition University or, or some other uh, other source. Industry, unless they come from government, usually doesn't come from that background. So they come mm-hmm. in and they're, they're, they maybe have been selling to uh, the commercial market or state or local. And now they say, now I want to sell it to the feds. And they know that there's this thing out there called the FAR and it's awfully, seems awfully complicated. And there's all these clauses in there contracts. And I think the the mindset among many is I'll never learn this. Uh, hopefully I don't mess up and I'm just going to keep my head down. And, and that's that's all, all I really need to know. And, you know, I, I think there's some truth to I'll never learn the whole FAR. I mean, when I started my career, my law firm uh, would give all the government contracts attorneys every year one of the print editions of the FAR. And that mm. thing was 
couple inches thick, like eight point font. You know, I'd like to joke, hey, if yeah. I really wanted to get toned, I'd just bench press a couple of those, you know, <laughs> all the time. Because there's, there's a lot in there. And so it was intimidating for me, too. And so I, I think of that about that as a lawyer. And I say, man, it would be really intimidating as a business owner who's working on selling IT or you're selling medical supplies or whatever you're doing, janitorial. And now you're supposed to know this entire list of rules of what it is. And so and that's not really realistic. But I think what I've tried to work with my clients and with some uh, talks I've given is kind of FAR 101 for industry. Like what's really helpful for you to know if you're coming at this as someone from industry, keeping in mind that I don't expect you to become an expert on the right. entire FAR. Nobody does. But what what should you know? Well, you know, first thing first is what the heck is the FAR? You know, that, that's why I say, well, what, what is it? It's this thing. Well, what is it? And so I think a lot of folks know it stands for federal acquisition regulations, but but what does that mean? And so I, you know, I start by saying, let's, let's put the FAR in, in context because it kind of helps me to figure out where does this fit in the grand scheme of of rules that govern everything that we do uh, as American citizens. And so what the FAR is, is a series of regulations. The FAR is part of the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulation. And what is the CFR? Those are simply regulations that are written typically by administrative agencies rather than by Congress itself. And those are written pursuant to congressional authority. So the FAR is not the direction of Congress. It's a direction of administrative personnel who are implementing authority that has been granted by Congress. And so if the FAR were to ever conflict with a statute, which is, which is what con Congress writes, then the statute's going to govern because it should go without saying that a regulation can't trump the will of the elected elected officials. So the FAR is a, is a series of regulations written by a body that's colloquially known as the FAR Council. Now, most agency regulations that you see out there are written by one agency. So example, if you see a regulation starting with 13 CFR, I use those all the time. That's a section of the Code of Federal Regulations where the SBA's regulations are found. SBA writes those regulations. Nobody else writes. The FAR is unique. The FAR is part of 48 CFR. And that's a, you know, the FAR, FAR provision in 48 CFR means exactly the same thing. And I think that confuses some people too. And so they will say, well, you know, FAR 52.219.14, but what is this 48 CFR 52.219.14? They're the same thing. It's the same way that you you can, they're, they're, they're equal. And so if you say 48 CFR 52.219.14, that's the limitation on subcontracting clause, the same thing as we in government contracting just like to get rid of the 48 CFR and write FAR. But I think that confuses some folks and makes them think that maybe the FAR is not part of the CFR, because I often hear people talking about about, well, there's the FAR on the one hand and there's the CFR on the other. Nope. The FAR is just part of 48 CFR. It's written by a body, again, I mentioned known colloquially as the FAR Council. That is comprised of representatives of the Department of Defense, GSA, General Services Administration, and NASA. And I, someone asked me recently how NASA got involved in the FAR Council, and I don't know. But as you can ex expect, the DOD represents kind of the, the military side of things, and this GSA is representative of the non-military or quote-unquote civilian uh, branches on the council. Council, and together they write that FAR. And that's where it comes from. It comes from those administrative uh, folks who are implementing the directive of Congress. And so I think, again, that's just kind of tip number one is to understand, kind of contextualize what the FAR even is and understand it's just a regulation, a series of regulations, really. Is it called the FAR, Federal Acquisition Regulation Regulations? But it's a series of regulations. It's, it's no more 
powerful than any other regulation. It's no weaker than any other regulation. It's a series of regulations found in 48 CFR. And in fact, if you are using your favorite internet search engine to try to find FAR references and the FAR 52.209.14 isn't working or whatever, plug in 48 CFR. I've seen that work. So, so that's tip number one. And then, you know, I'm going to pause that. I just don't want to, you know, give a soliloquy like I'm in a Shakespeare play or something, but, but that's tip number one. And then I've, you know, over time as I've, I had to do this myself because I didn't come from a, a government background that would have gotten training on the FAR. Um, but how, how, you know, how do you then learn to use this big brick uh, in print form, which hopefully you're not using the print form of regulations. And I've, I've got a few thoughts on that uh, as well, but I think just understanding where it comes from and what it is can help you say, okay, well, maybe it's not quite so scary. I, I know it. I can name it. I understand where it fits in the kind of the rubric of, of federal law. Yeah, I, no, that that's good. A great overview there. I, I think for a lot of contractors, the the challenge is how do I use, you kind of alluded to that just a moment ago. How do I use it? So now that I know what it is, how is this helpful to me in any way in my business? Right. And, that, and that's where kind of understanding uh, the FAR, I think in the modern age is almost a little difficult, more difficult than it was when I was uh, starting my career and got the print form. Because the print form, if you're given a book and say, and you're looking for a certain item in there, like, okay, well, I don't understand the rules regarding whether I can submit a late proposal. You're going to flip in that book to sections that are relevant to that. You're going to skip all the stuff on cost accounting standards, for example. You say, well, that's not where I'm going to find the late proposal rules. And okay, now I'm looking at FAR Part 14. It says about sealed bids, but I'm not doing a sealed bid. That's not what I, okay, oh, FAR Part 15, that has negotiated procurements. That's probably where I ought to look. And so the print form already kind of forces you to, to find the appropriate context that you'd be looking in in the FAR. This day and age, how do people find FAR references? They're they're usually Googling or using their favorite right. uh, substitute. And that can lead to a lot of results and it omits the context. And so you, it looks like there's just all these random rules out there when in fact they're organized and ordered in a way that makes a lot of sense. And so what I tell my clients is, look, you don't have to read the whole FAR. No one's going to do that except some, you know, someone like me who's, and I haven't <laughs> even read the whole thing, uh, but someone who may be in my position or something, who's te- someone who's teaching acquisition uh, policy. But read uh, FAR Part 1, FAR Part 1. FAR Part 1 is kind of the lonely overlooked part of the FAR, but what is it? It's in part of FAR Part 1 is essentially the uh, the owner's manual for the FAR. Hmm. They tell you how the FAR is organized. They tell you all these terms that you come into pl- into contact with. Well, it's Part 14 and it's Subpart 14.3. What is it? Why is it even 52.219.14? Why, why isn't it just FAR Rule 25? Like what, what's with all the, the dashes and the periods? It, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And yet there's a, there's a method to the madness here and it's laid out in FAR Part 1. They even include for the visual learners among us a graph that, that like points mm-hmm. to different the number. Like here's what the 52 means. Here's what the 2 means. Here's what the 19 means. Here's why we do the dashes. And so all of a sudden when you see that the numbering system suddenly makes sense and now you're thinking, well, hey, wait a second. If I see a FAR reference, even if I'm going to go and I, I get it, most people are still going to go to their favorite search engine, although I'll give you an alternative in a moment to find relevant FAR provisions. But when you find a FAR provision, if you're going on to Google or wherever and you're typing late proposal uh, rules and the first thing you see is a you know FAR 14 point something and, and you know that FAR, you know, the 14 is the part and you look at and you say, well, FAR 14 is sealed bids, you're going to realize that's irrelevant to you. And that's kind of the, you know, the second piece of it. Read FAR part one because it includes the instruction manual for the FAR. It also, by the way, includes some really important things you ought to know about the roles of federal contracting officers and who has authority to modify your contracts and things like that. So so read those too, although it's not really relevant to our discussion today. 
but read the instruction manual, understand how the organization system is. And from there, you'll realize that while the FAR maybe these days, it's probably three inches thick at six point font in print form, but the vast majority of it is irrelevant to you. And so if you can <laughs> can hunt and, and, and selectively find the pieces of the FAR that are relevant to you and your situation, uh, then you're going to all of a sudden find the FAR a lot more usable and a lot less scary because you're going to say, huh, well, this whole this whole chapter on you know cost accounting standard, I'm not worried about that for the question I've got right now. It's not even a cost reimbursement uh, contract. I don't need to worry about that. Or this whole chapter on how the government conducts market research, that has nothing to do with me right now. So I'm going to skip that. And you'll find as a contractor that you are going back, not you know, in FAR part one to, for, to refresh, but to the same parts of the FAR, three or four parts out of 52 over and over and over, because that's where the stuff that's relevant to you is usually found. And that, that all of a sudden takes you from a universe of, man, this thing is so overwhelming and huge. I'll never learn it to actually the parts I need to know are, are much, you know, much narrower. And, and I can, I can handle this. I can learn the stuff I need to know from my business, my customer. That's a really good point. And I, I find that a lot of people look at it and either completely dismiss it or say, Hey, I want to narrow in and I want to focus on this one thing and learn this. And that's how I'm going to make money is learning how to use this one piece of the FAR, uh, like simplified acquisitions. You know, once I really understand how simplified acquisitions work, I can help the contracting officer, you know, navigate this with me. And it, it should be their job to know how to use a lot of this stuff anyway. But again, it's one of those things where if I don't bring it up with a contracting officer, because I don't understand simplified acquisitions, or I don't know how they can use this lever in the business, then it, it makes it difficult for me to have those conversations with folks. So I'm just kind of blindly trying things and possibly, you know, approaching a situation that is against the rules, you know, trying to get somebody to do something that's completely against the rules. And I don't know it because I don't fully understand the rule book. And I, I think that's, that's key for a lot of folks is, you know, they could be telling you no, because you're trying to break the rules and you don't even <laughs> right. understand it. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I see that all the time and, and I believe me, I think that you're kind of hitting on a, something I tell my uh, clients and uh, others in the industry too, which is, you know, anytime you're getting get involved in a particular line of work, just as you would be foolish to, you know, start playing baseball without understanding the rules, mm -hmm. you ought to understand the key, you know, maybe not the infield fly rule or whatever, but yeah. you ought to, you ought to know the basics before you, you start playing the game. And that's true for contracting too. And I think that there's a reputational advantage you have by coming across to the government as a contractor who knows what they're talking about. I think there absolutely are some cases where the, the I mean, con being a contracting officer, specialist, et cetera, that's a tough job. They sometimes get it wrong or don't understand. So you can politely, you know, maybe influence those calls. But you are absolutely right that if you go in there pounding the table saying, hey, contracting officer, you must set this si you know, aside for SDVSBs. That's what Kingdomware says. That's what 38 uh, USC 8127 says. And they say, sorry, we're the GSA. That's, that's a VA rule. <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? And, right. and so, you know, the, now you don't come across uh, uh, knowledgeable, you, you get the opposite reputation. Right. So understanding those rules. And of course, yeah, being careful how you, there, there's no, nothing wrong with talking through this with the contracting officer in a polite uh, setting. But anytime you're being 
aggressive about it, be very sure you know what you're talking about and that you want to take that posture. Right. Yeah. I actually had a, a client it's not too long ago and they were having an issue with a contracting officer and it, there, this issue was going on. And then he said, Mike, I need to talk to you about this. And here's what this thing blew up and here's what's going on. And I said, well, send me the email. And he sends me the email. And instead of like politely or even subtly dro- dropping the hints, like he literally said, you must, according to the FAR, and then quotes the FAR, and then you also must, according, you know, and it's like, <laughs> did you not see that as a challenge when you did that? Because I know how when I quote rules to my kids or wife or anyone, how that's just not the way to do it. And so it just started this war and of, hey, don't tell me how to do my job, basically. And it was completely unnecessary instead of saying something along the lines of, hey, I noticed based on, you know, this far that we could do this this way. Would you be open to pursuing this, you know, now that we know we can do it this way? You know, it's just being understanding how to subtly use these things instead of pounding them on the table with a hammer uh, is to me kind of like this finesse approach, if you will. Uh, I think that's very important for folks to understand. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, that's, um, you know, I, I've long been of the mindset that you, you got to know your stuff. It's important to know the rule book, but you got to remember that even even now as we're in 2021 and there's a lot of virtual meetings going on, less of the, the in-person handshake type meetings, government contracts is still in large part a relationship business and it's a mm-hmm. reputation business. And I'm not just talking about your CPARs. I'm talking about what people think about people. Do they right. like working with you? Do they what, what vibes do they get from you? And that's not, you're never going to see that in evaluation criteria. Right. Um, you know, is this person a jerk? Is Are they telling me how to do my job? But that yeah. it does, I mean, these are people, these are human beings. Yeah, these it, are people. <laughs> it, it's very real. And it, I, I always say like your, your first impression usually tells people what the relationship is going to be like. And if the first impression is you, you come in swinging, then right out of the gate, they don't need that in their life. And people are smart enough to realize that. And so for me, it's understanding, again, that finesse approach of, hey, you know, we we realize according to the FAR, we can do this this way. That's why I'm positioning it with you. You know, would you be open to going down this rabbit hole with me on simplified acquisition or what, you know, whatever the thing might be, you know there's just some finesse to it. And and that's where understanding the rule book and applying the rule book to me are, are two different things. And so it, it, it's, it's on one hand, easy to understand the rule book and the art becomes applying the rule book, if you will. And then, Agreed. yeah, and I, I see different scenarios where, uh, you know, you mentioned the accounting piece. I think that's some great stuff for people to understand the accounting side. Uh, I've thrown out simplified acquisitions. You've talked about, uh, a little bit about like turning in a late proposal. What are a couple of the other areas where you think the average government contractor should probably be aware of? Read FAR Part 1. I will mention this again because this is just important to, to know. It's in FAR Part 1. And this, this unfortunately, I see happen all the time. And contracting officers and contracting specialists and those who work for the government are flabbergasted that industry, many in industry don't understand this. But that's because we, you know, we in industry haven't gotten that training, which is the authority of government contracting officials. Who hmm. can actually tell you to do additional work? Who can tell you to change your work? Who can direct you to, to to even just orally to do something new? And the answer is a warranted contracting officer acting within the scope of his or her warrant. And that is, that's basically, this is, you know, I'm essentially quoting 
uh, indirectly, I guess not directly from FAR Part 1. And what happens in practice is that many contractors are not working often at all with the contracting officer. That person may be overseeing dozens of contracts. And so that person is working, the contractor is working often with a contracting officer's representative or core. That's that's a common person mm -hmm. they're working with. Or they might be working with a project architect or an engineer or some you know, a technical representative. And they come to see that that person as kind of embodying the government. And so when that person suggests that, hey, maybe you ought to do X, even though it's not in the contract, they tend to go ahead and do X with mm -hmm. the mindset being, I think, that anybody who carries a government business card is empowered to tell me what to do and the government's going to pay me if I do it. And that is, that's unfortunately incorrect. If, if you're, let's say that you were, uh, you've got a, uh, a, a contract to mow the lawn at a at a uh, army facility in Florida, uh, Northern Florida will make it because then all of a sudden a freak snowstorm hits once in a generation sort of thing. It's up in Pensacola or mm -hmm. whatever, where they have gotten snow. And so you're, you're the contractor who's responsible for trimming the hedges and mowing the lawn. And the core says to you, hey, while you're here, uh, we've got a lot of ice and snow on the base. Could you could you clear off the walks and de-ice them and all that stuff? And you go ahead and do that. Are you going to get paid for that? Maybe not. The government actually doesn't owe you for that work. The government mm -hmm. doesn't owe you for that work because the core didn't have authority to direct you to do it. Now, the government might pay you for it if they're feeling generous on a process called ratification, which is where the contracting officer goes back and says, okay, well, Cora didn't have authority to order that, shouldn't have done it, but okay, we'll pay it. But they don't have to. And I've seen contractors lose hundreds of thousands in work that mm -hmm. they had actually done, done satisfactorily, had given the government a benefit, and the government says, you know what? You know, that that wasn't ordered by us. We don't have to pay you for yeah. it. So be really careful. That's, that's one thing that I would read in FAR Part 1. And then I would say, just big picture-wise, a couple things to know. Um, if you are dealing as most of my small business clients, although not all do, with what's called negotiated acquisitions under FAR Part 15, that's the sort of, you know you're in a negotiated acquisition typically, though not always, could be something else. But typically you're you're in a negotiated acquisition where the government is doing a evaluation where they're trading off factors. They're saying, hey, if technical past performance prices, put them all in a ball and pick, you know, shake it up and pick the pick the lottery winner. That kind of contract is governed by FAR Part 15, the, the procurement process and uh, the resulting contract. So it's, I think if, you know, if you're going to look at other pieces of the FAR, FAR Part 15 is really important to you. That's where the rules of governing past performance evaluation come in, for example. People will say, where does it say, that get this all the time with respect to the now CIOSP4, where does it say that the government must consider the past performance of my subcontractor? Well, unfortunately, FAR Part 15 says the government should consider the past performance of your yourself. So not, not as strong as must, but you would know that if you read that part of, of FAR Part 15. So I would I would understand that. And then at an even uh, more macro level than that, make sure you understand the difference between uh, the FAR provisions, or they call the instructions, which is like FAR Part 15, and the clauses. The clauses go in contracts. And you know you're seeing a FAR clause when you see 52. You know, when I mentioned FAR 52, 209, 14, that's a clause. And a clause is, is something that applies directly to the directly to the contractor. It's inserted in your contract. You have a contractual obligation if it's in your contract to follow that clause. If it's not in your contract, you probably don't have to follow it. I say probably because occasionally mm -hmm. the government can say it's the whole thing called the Christian doctrine that the clause applies anyway that they left out. Uh, but typically, if a clause is, is not in your contract, you don't have to follow it. So, uh, you know, it, when you're going around and, and doing that Googling and you come up with a clause, because that happens all the time, it's a late proposal, something's got a 52 in it. Uh, unless that's in your solicitation or contract probably doesn't apply to you. 
So that's another thing to, to keep in mind as well. Now, that doesn't mean I've had some folks say, well, if it's not a clause, it doesn't apply to you at all. Don't worry about it. And that's not correct. That is not correct. And so you, it would be nice if you could say that nothing else in the FAR applies but the clauses, but that's that's not true. For example, we both have mentioned the cost accounting rules. Those are not clauses. Those are That's just a whole uh, part of the FAR. And if you're engaged in the type of contract that requires you to to go through the cost accounting processes, those rules apply to you, even though they're not in a clause. So uh, be careful about that. Then one final thing I would say, if you're going to just read uh, contract provisions and understand what applies to you, if you're engaged in selling commercial items and you, the commercial items in, under FAR speak is much uh, broader than a layperson might think of it. Uh, and so it's not just these commercially available off the shelf items, but all sorts of other things that can be classified as commercial items. It's, you don't have to worry about discovering whether it's a commercial item or not. It should be the box checked on the cover sheet of your contract or solicitation that tells you. Commercial items are a little different because a lot of the relevant FAR provisions are found in just two clauses. And I don't know the citations off the top of my head, but they're 52, I think 212, maybe one and four, something along those lines. But there's a clause called FAR commercial items instructions to offerors. And that has a lot of the rules governing how a proposal is going to be evaluated. And then really key clause, uh, the FAR uh, commercial items a contractual provisions clause. And so, you know, that's where a lot of the key provisions are in a commercial items contract rather than spaced throughout the FAR. So if you are in that sort of contract, know that clause. It's only going to take you 10 minutes, 15 minutes to read through it. And you've got a, you know, a good chunk of the rules governing your contract right there in that one clause. It's well worth your time. Those are really good. I really like the example you gave as well, because I think when you are starting out in government contracting, this is where you're typically going to get tripped up. Somebody's going to ask something. You're trying to do your best job. You're just going to do it and you may not get paid, that sort of thing. And it could be confusing and frustrating. And if I was to give one piece of advice to people, especially when you're new in government contracting, if you don't know, stop and ask. Like even if it's not asking the contracting officer, if somebody asks you to do something or something's going on and you don't feel right, or that you just, you have questions because you don't know, stop and ask, whether it's one of us, whether it's, you know, like you said, Googling the FAR, whatever it may be, stop and ask to see, is this right? Are they asking you to do something within the rule book or outside of the rule book? How should you apply this? Because again, this is where we can make or lose money. Who has the authority to do different things, to ask you for different things? I know, I know the pressure of being on site and being asked to do something and feeling that pressure that, hey, I need to do this because Jan said it and Jan controls the purse strings. And if I don't do it, Jan's not going <laughs> to, you know, reaward this contract or whatever it may be, or we're in the middle of trying to get a contract and she holds the purse strings. And so I know the pressure of that. So, but that doesn't mean you have to make a foolish decision. You can just stop, ask somebody the question, figure out how to proceed and then move forward. Uh, you know, that, that to me is a big one. The, the, the one you mentioned there, the example about, you know, just putting down the de-icer and all that kind of stuff on the sidewalks because what if I'm doing this and I'm out of contract and now somebody slips and falls on my stuff and and I'm you know deemed as well they just did that on the base you know they weren't under contract or anything you know because somebody's trying to avoid liability and I'm not saying you know that would or wouldn't happen but there's so many scenarios that could come up and you just need to stop and ask a question even if you're on site with a customer you know hey it's a great idea let me 
let me ask the team if we should proceed with this. And so a lot of stuff to unpack here, but I think you help make it simple by saying, hey, read FAR Part 1. Look for some of the, the, the places that you know directly apply to you. And then like I was saying in the end here, just as you go, just learn this stuff. Because out of the hundreds of pages, there are only a few bits and pieces here, there that apply to most people in certain situations. You may not come into those situations. So so good stuff. I, I think that helped demystify it and it's definitely not as scary. So so thank you for that. I don't, I don't know if you have anything else you want to throw at this before we hop off here. I think it's been a, a great discussion. Appreciate again you having me on because I really enjoy just kind of helping contractors become a little less scared, intimidated by the FAR. Um, that example that you, that you just gave about, you know, Jan getting mad at you. I hear that all the time, clients. Well, yeah. you know, hey, my core told me to do X, Y, or Z. And I really don't, I really don't feel like I can say no because of the relationship. And so one thing I've said is, look, it's fine to create a little separation if you have to by making me or whoever you're, you're, who is not in your organization, the bad guy say, well, my attorney told me that I just can't do this unless I get the contracting officer to sign off. So I love you, Jan, but can you, can you get the contracting officer to email me, <laughs> you know, yeah. or something like that. So some folks have found that useful by saying, you know, let, let's, let's separate the, the, the pushback and make it my fault that they're asking this, right. which it sort of is anyway. Um, and, and hopefully preserving that relationship. It's not because I don't know you or trust you, Jan. It's because my attorney is just so adamant on this point that I, I don't want to, that person to get mad at me too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, some people have found that useful. Yeah, no, that, that's a good way to do it. So so thanks for taking time out today to talk about this. I'm sure uh, we'll have you back on and talk about some other stuff in the near future. But thanks for talking about the FAR and helping demystify it. I think that was really helpful for folks. Well, thanks so much, Mike. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers. Changers.